So with regards to the Christmas Eve service, Ricky said we try to stick to about a 30-minute uh, service on Christmas Eve. That was a lie. We do not try to stick to about a 30-minute service on Christmas Eve. We absolutely, positively, without exception, will not go 31 minutes. It will be exactly a 30-minute service. Now, I know some of you are saying, wait a second, Pastor Doug can't say Merry Christmas in 30 minutes, so I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. That just proves you have never been to one of our Christmas Eve services. Uh, It is an absolute highlight of the year around here. It is a great way to keep Christ in the center of Christmas. Most of us on Christmas Eve are, are with family, we're with friends, we're doing things, we're celebrating, all that kind of stuff. And, and Christmas can easily just get away from us, right? And, and we get caught up in all the stuff we have going on and it's just a busy, crazy time. And, and we can get all the way through the Christmas season and realize that we never even stop to think about Jesus, let alone worship him on Christmas, So Christmas Eve is designed to help us all battle against that. So on Christmas Eve, uh, you come together, we start on time, we finish on time, and you are back to your celebration. So I really encourage you to be thinking about uh, whatever you're doing on Christmas Eve, how can you build it around the Christmas Eve service? If you have people coming to your home, bring them. If If you're going somewhere, Go right after the Christmas Eve service, but you do not want to miss this Christmas Eve service. It will get us really focused on Christ and all of that because it is the Christmas season. Do you guys like the Christmas trees? Those are nice, right? What's that? Uh, uh, They are small, Um, but you know what? They're Christmas trees. I love Christmas trees. I'm a huge fan of Christmas trees. Uh, you, You maybe don't have to raise your hand, but... Uh, if you were around in the 60s, do you, I mean, if you were around in the 60s, you may not have the strength to raise your hand, but if you're around in the 60s, do you remember the, the fad of the silver Christmas trees? Do you guys remember those? We had silver Christmas trees. All you youngins, listen up. We used to have silver Christmas trees, and we would have these lights on the ground that had like a, a, a spinning wheel of colors, and they would shine up on the Christmas trees. And I remember as a kid, now I was just a baby in the 60s, of course, but I remember as a kid just thinking that was the absolutely coolest thing in the world. And now I see pictures of those old things, and I go, what the heck were we thinking? <laughs> those things are horrible. And then we, as I was growing up, we only did artificial Christmas trees, ugly, funky-looking artificial Christmas trees. That's what we always had when I was growing up. So I remember the year that we got married, the biggest thing I said was, we got to get a real Christmas tree. It was my first chance to have a real Christmas tree. The problem was, like many of us, the year that we got married, we didn't have a penny to our names. We were absolutely broke. Christmas comes along, and, and we made an agreement. We said, we will not buy each other Christmas gifts. Instead, we will use that money to buy a Christmas tree. So it was a huge deal for us to go get this Christmas tree. At least it was for me. And I remember we went down to this Christmas tree lot and we haggled with the guy until we could get this thing and we got him to tie it to the roof of our car and do all that kind of stuff. I felt like a grown-up for the first time, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm driving. <laughs> we get on the, on the highway with this Christmas tree uh, strapped to the top of our car and all of a sudden I hear this noise and I look in my rearview mirror and I notice my Christmas tree bouncing down the highway behind us. Yeah, it was all the money we had. And, and there's my Christmas tree. I'm watching it in the mirror. It's bouncing down the highway. The, the rope snapped and off the, the thing fell onto the highway. And I pulled over and I saw the Christmas tree laying there in the inside island. And I ran across the highway and grabbed the Christmas tree and ran back across the highway. I was not giving up that tree. And... And then we're like, well, we can't put it on the roof of the car. What do we do? So we opened the back doors of the car, which didn't open wide enough, and we start shoving this thing into the back seat of our car. I kid you not. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. We shoved this thing into the back seat. We rolled down the window so there's branches sticking out in every direction. 
and we get home, and then, and then how do you get this thing out now? It is wedged in, so we're breaking branches off, pulling it out. We finally get this thing up to our house. It made Charlie Brown's tree look like a winner. <laughs> but I'm telling you what, it was important to us. We had our first Christmas tree. So every time we decorate for Christmas around here, I get excited when I see the Christmas tree. So uh, it is Christmas season. I hope you guys are trying to keep the pace a little bit and not get overwhelmed by the whole thing. We are in the book of Genesis. We've been in the book of Genesis now for a while. Um, And just for any of you who maybe haven't been here the whole time, I'm going to give you from time to time this sort of big picture recap, right? Because it's from the book of Genesis that we really get the foundational truths that carry us through life, the foundational truths that help us to understand our world that we live in today. A lot of people would look at a book that's so ancient and say, what could this possibly have to do with my life today? But it has everything to do with our lives today. And we get these foundational principles like, for instance, Genesis chapter one, verse one. Right there on page one, you open your Bible and it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he lays the foundation. He says, listen, God is not something that was created by man. God is not an idea that arose out of human philosophy. God is not something that is a part of nature, that we bow down and worship in nature. But God is the one who created everything in nature. God is the one who created the whole universe. God is the one who spoke it all into existence. You know, scientists were shocked maybe 50 years ago when they finally understood the Big Bang Theory and they went, oh my gosh, this is different than we ever thought it was. There's overwhelming evidence that the universe all began in one moment. What a shocker. There's overwhelming evidence now in science that tells us that the universe is not, as was always believed, to be uh, infinite. It's not infinite. In fact, we can measure that it is still expanding and growing now. And we have telescopes out in space that allow us to do the calculations and see this. God spoke and he began a process in which all of creation came into being. And as you know, Genesis tells us that God created mankind as the crown jewel of creation and that he instituted a relationship with human beings. But because of our free will, It didn't take long before man decided to rebel against God, and that created something that theologians call the fall, which explains the whole big question of what is wrong with the world? Why is there all this death? Why is there all this war? Why is there all this disease? Why is there all these broken relationships? Why is the world such a mess? Genesis tells us the world is such a mess because we human beings decide that we want to be our own gods and our unwillingness to fall in and worship the one true God creates this situation where, where all that God has created is broken. And then the, the, that leads us to this next question, well, is there any hope? Is there any redemption? Is there any way that that which is broken can be made whole again? And that's where we come in chapter 12 of Genesis to this guy named uh, Abram. And Abram becomes the beginning of the process of redemption that we see God beginning to work out in his long-term plan. Now, Abram or Abraham, and and you already have caught me on this. I keep calling him Abraham sometimes and Abram. He's the same guy. His name gets changed about halfway through his story. He goes from being Abram to being Abraham, and we'll get to that. But Abram is not perfect, and we've already seen that as we've been looking at his story. He, he is a flawed person. Uh, when, when God found him, he had nothing to offer God. He, God didn't choose him because he was so worthy. God didn't choose him because he was so righteous or so holy or so good. In fact, he was a pagan just like everybody else living in that region at that time. He was a worshiper of nature. He didn't understand that there was one true God who made everything until God came to him and introduced himself. You know, so many people think, I've got to figure out a way that maybe I can earn favor with God. I've got to work my way to heaven. I've got to somehow be good enough to impress God because good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, and I've got to figure out how to be good enough. And let me just take some pressure off of everybody right now. You ain't good enough. 
You're not going to be good enough. None of us has ever been good enough because the standard of God is holiness. The standard of God is perfection. And none of us is ever going to live up to that. And so let's stop pressuring ourselves to go, if I could somehow be better, maybe God will accept me. The beauty of Abraham is that God didn't say, Abraham, if you do these things, I will accept you. God went to him. And God reached out to him, and God called him, and God gave him a promise, and God gave him a blessing. It's not like God comes up to us with his hand out going, what do you have to give me, and I'll see if I'll bless you. That's not what he did with Abram, and it's not what he does with us. He had nothing to offer God, but God redeemed him. And through him, God promises to bless the world. And Abram did some good things, And Abraham did some absolutely stupid things. But through it all, he became known as the father of the faithful. And and all of that, not because his scorecard was so great, but because he simply walked with God. And he didn't allow himself to get knocked off track. When he messed up, he turned back to God Return to worship and repentance and followed God again. So God calls Abram and he says, I want you to follow me to the place that I will show you. And it takes faith for him to get up, leave everything he's known and begin to follow God. And he takes his family with him. And part of his family is his uh, nephew, uh, a young man called Lot. And so they leave together with their sort of clan and he brings Lot with them. Now, last week in chapter 13, we saw that uh, both Abram and Lot are standing at a crossroads. And Lot chooses the route of um, selfishness, and Abram chooses the the road of generosity. And at that point, their lives begin to part. Now, this is not the last time we'll see them together. This is not the last interaction that they have with each other. But in the story, this is where we begin to see them as a contrast to one another. And so Lot chooses the Valley of Sodom, and he goes down to the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he he sets up shop outside the city of Sodom so that he can be in trade with the people of the city and make a good living. And Abram trusts God and says, I'll go wherever you tell me to go. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to give you the whole thing anyway. That's chapter 13. Lot chooses to take care of himself, and Abram chooses to trust God. That brings us today to chapter 14. So congratulations if you missed the last 10 weeks. You just figured out what you missed. I don't know why it takes so long every week then. Um, (laughs) Genesis chapter 14 We're going to begin right at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. Now, follow along with me. I'm going to teach you guys something here that's going to amaze you. It will change your life. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and uh, Shimaber, king of Zoboam, the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kirnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Imam in Sheva Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their, in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to In Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazor Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. <sighs> now, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me and said, I, I don't know how you know how to pronounce all of those names. And so I'm going to just teach you, and you guys will have this now for the rest of your life, because I went to seminary, and this is how, what I learned. 
fake it. <laughs> I have no idea how to pronounce any of those words. I just pronounce them as they come out of my mouth, and I figure you can't pronounce them anyway, so who's going to hold me accountable, right? I have no idea what any of those names are, but we just spit out a whole bunch of them, right? But here's the bottom line. Let me just kind of summarize this, right? Basically, there in the valley, there are these various kings. Now, first thing we need to understand is that when it talks about kings in this section of scripture, we are not talking about leaders of nations, okay? The way we think of kings today. We're basically talking about leaders of clans, we're talking about um, the political leaders within cities and, uh, and villages and areas. So in each area where there are people who have settled, they create some form of loose government where there is, in every case, a patriarch. He's the oldest guy in the family. He's the one that founded the area or whatever. And everybody looks to him as a leader and he is called the king. So in all of these little cities and towns around this area, they each have kings. And really, they probably would have referred to Abram as a king, except that Abram didn't have any land. Abram was a guy who was wandering, who was passing through, but he too was the head of a clan, and he had all these people who answered to him, and all these people who followed him, and all these people for whom he was responsible, and that's what these kings were. Now, there were some cities that were larger and more powerful than others. They had more people, and therefore those kings had more power. And uh, in this case, this guy, Cheddar Loamer, he's the guy who uh, had the most power. And the other kings came under his authority. And this went on for over 10 years before the kings began to get fed up with the way things were getting distributed. And they separated and they had something of a civil war in that area. Five kings against four going to battle against one another, okay? Now let's pick it up in verse uh, 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. I want you to make note of that last part. He was living in Sodom. Just uh, last chapter, in chapter 13, we saw that he chose the valley where Sodom was, Sodom being the, the city that had the most commerce in that area, and he sets up his encampment near the city of Sodom so that he can do business with the people who come and go. But he doesn't go into the city of Sodom because it is well known even then that the city of Sodom is the wickedest city on earth. For example, and we'll get to this later in Genesis, but for example, it is a well-known fact to everyone living in that area at this time that if you were a traveler and you were passing through the city of Sodom, what you would do when you're passing through a city and you needed to, to hunker down for the night is you would basically sleep in the city square. But it was understood that if you slept in the city square in Sodom, you would without question be raped. That was how it was done. And so when we see later a time when there's people coming to the city of Sodom, they say, no, 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 don't go to the city square. Don't spend the night in the square. You can't spend the night in the open because the wickedness of these men, you will be attacked, you will be molested, and it will not go well for you. That's what the city of Sodom was known for. And so Lot sets up his tents outside of the city because he's a righteous man. He doesn't want anything to do with that. But by the time we turn the page to chapter 14, Lot is living in the city. It doesn't tell us what went into his decision. It doesn't tell us how long he lived outside the city before he moved in. But obviously things were going well enough in his business that he thought, I need to open a shop in town. And so he moved into the city and he began to live there in this city that was known for its wickedness. Now, this war that we see taking place, by the way, Genesis is a book of firsts. This is the first war in all of recorded human history. This is the first time that we ever hear about factions going to war. 
And it happens here in chapter 14 of Genesis. And it tells us that these various kings are involved. And I just want to point this out because I find it fascinating. that um, The city of Shinar or the area of Shinar and the area of Elam, who are two of these kings that are mentioned, uh, if you could look at a map, you would see that that is modern-day Iraq and modern-day Iran. So, so war, for the first time, begins... In that Middle Eastern region that we now know as the Arab nations, and there has not been a time when there was peace for any lasting period of time in that area, and it continues to this day. So war begins, and it becomes a way of life, and it begins here in chapter 14. Now, Lot is living in Sodom, and we'll get to more about that later. But I want you to notice something. When these kings come in and they attack Sodom and Gomorrah and they plunder it, they take all of the goods, did you notice that they don't kill Lot? He's the only one that's mentioned that they take with them. They take all of his goods and they take Lot with them. And when I read that, I wonder why, because that's not how war is done. You go in, you take over the people, or you wipe them out, and you take their goods. And it makes me think, why would they take this guy instead of just killing him and taking his stuff? It doesn't say that they took anyone else. Some fled to the hill country, it says. Some fell into the tar pits, and some were killed in the battle. But they took Lot. For some reason, Lot, along with his family, become not casualties and death, um, uh, deaths in the war, but they become prisoners of war. Somehow, as we're reading this story, it seems like God is not finished with Lot. It seems like God has a plan for Lot. And for some reason, God seems to be protecting Lot. Just because he messed up didn't mean God was finished with him. For some reason, God kept him alive, even though he did let him go through a very fiery trial. I mean, I cannot imagine what it must have been like to have built up this empire there in Sodom and then come and have it all taken away from him in a moment. But way more important than all the stuff that he lost to have your, your wife and your daughters taken captive by these warring armies. You can only imagine what's going to happen to them. And you're horrified. So, so I don't mean to minimize at all what Lot is going through. It has got to be a terrible thing that they are taken as prisoners. God lets him go through a tremendous trial. And, and it's important for us to think about this for a second. Why does God sometimes let us go through tremendous trials? Could God not have just protected Lot? Couldn't it have been that, that everybody else got taken and Lot got left alone? Couldn't it have been that, that God would have allowed him to keep his stuff? But for whatever reason, God allows him to go through probably what is at this point the worst trial he's ever faced in his life. And God allows him to go through this. Why does God take us through trials? I don't know the whole answer to that. But I have some thoughts. One reason is because he loves us too much to give up on us. I mean, Lot has essentially begun drifting he goes from being this righteous man, a worshiper of God, to choosing business over righteousness, and to moving into the city of the wicked people, and he has messed up big time. And yet, if you read, for instance, in James chapter 1, the very beginning of James chapter 1, it says we're supposed to consider it joy when we encounter various trials, because God wants to use those trials as a testing of our faith so that it produces in us endurance. James uh, 1, 2 through 4 explains that. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says that God brings trials into our lives because it is through trials that God develops in us 
perseverance. And perseverance leads to proven character. And proven character leads to hope. And hope does not disappoint. And so if you've been around on this earth for more than about 15 minutes, you know that life is full of trials. Can I get an amen? Amen. Right? Life's full of trials. None of us is exempt. None of us is protected. We all face trials. And yet, God is still God. And and the fact that he allows us to go through this kind of stuff does not mean he's forgotten about us. It does not mean he's abandoned us. It does not mean he's had it up to here with us and there's not going to be any more. It means that God is trying to do something in our lives that can only be done through trials. And so Lot enters into this trial. He's trying to use trials to get our attention. He wants us to wake up before it's too late. But as we're going to see as we continue in Genesis, one thing is for sure. If we don't respond to the wake-up calls from God that come through our trials, sooner or later it is too late. And the next few chapters are going to tell us how Lot responded to the opportunity that God gave him. But let's pick it up here in chapter 14, verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew... Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, uh, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. So this guy runs away from the battle. He comes to where Abram is living, and he says, "Hey, I don't know if you've been watching CNN, but there was a battle, and Sodom was overthrown, and Lot and his family were taken." Now, before we get to the ramifications of that announcement, I just want you to notice something in uh, verse 13. It says, then the fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time the word Hebrew appears anywhere. And it's not defined for us. All of a sudden, Abram is not known as Abram of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's not known as Abram of Haran. He is known as Abram the Hebrew. And Hebrew is one of those words that uh, has very um, fuzzy origins. Uh, I, I looked at countless pages of information to try to understand fully what the word Hebrew means and where it came from. And the best I can do is this. Hebrew basically means one who's passing through. It, it, it refers to someone who is sort of not one of us, someone who is an outsider. He, he's not known by the city in which he lives. He doesn't have a city. He's known as Abram, the one who's different. He's known as Abram, the traveler. He's known as Abram, the outsider. Abram, the one who's passing through. And he was living among them, but he was clearly not one of them. He was known as an outsider. And this is the first mention of Hebrews anywhere in the scripture. And from this point on, the descendants of Abraham are known as what? Hebrews. We have a whole book in the New Testament dedicated to Hebrews. And so Abram is this outsider. And it's interesting because in the New Testament, there's a different word that refers to outsiders. It's a Greek word that refers to those who have been called out of the crowd, those who are outside of the norm, those who are different than everybody else. And the Greek word is ekklesia, and the translation of ekklesia is church. So just like Abram was a Hebrew and he was an outsider, the people of God have always been called out from the people of the world, always different, always distinct, never fitting in, never quite looking like everyone else, never quite sharing the same values and the same beliefs and the same activities as everyone else. And guys, one of the things that I think is costing the cause of the gospel in the United States and around the world today is that the church has gone to such great lengths to try to fit in with the world. We've gone to such great lengths to try to look like everybody else, sound like everybody else. We don't want to be different. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to offend anybody. And because of that, nobody knows us as different. 
And I just want to suggest to us today that maybe being different is a part of what it means to be a follower of God. Abram was a Hebrew. The church are called out ones. And, and I'm not saying that we need to be weird, <laughs> right? How many of you know some religious people who are weird? Yeah, right? You don't have to be weird. God has not called us to be weird. Now, I know some of you, and there's not much you can do about it, but, but you know, God hasn't called us to be weird. He has called us to be markedly different, to live by a different set of beliefs, to live by a different code of values and conduct. And people should see the church and they should stand back and go, what is it about those people? And it shouldn't be, what is it about those people that makes them so judgmental? And it shouldn't be, what, makes, what is it about those people that makes them so weird? It should be, what is it about those people that makes them not conform to the image of society? Whose image are they conforming to? Romans 12 tells us we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. Called out ones. Hebrews. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went into pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Now, you talk about evidence for God's blessing. Remember God's promise to Abram? He said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever comes against you, I will come against, right? And, and we're about to see that. We're about to see how God has Abram's back. This is fascinating to me. Just to give you a picture of what's going on with Abram, how much God has blessed him, and he called just him and his family out of Haran, and they began to follow him. By this point in the story, only two more chapters into the story, we're discovering that there are already 318 trained warriors in his family, people that were born in his house. <laughs> and, and that doesn't include the ones that, that have joined them along the way. This is not a small little group of 20 people traveling from place to place. There are 318 trained men. And when you start thinking about like the size of a person's empire, so to speak, I started thinking about my own empire. And I thought, you know, in my house, we have like two not very trained men. That's what we got in my, that, that is clan sprigs, right? That's what we got. So if you get kidnapped, don't call us. <laughs> we'll pray for you. That's, all, that's what we got. Abram somehow prepared an army of home-born men. And these men go out to save Lot. And not only does he have these 318 trained warriors, in addition to the servants that are with them, but verse 13 told us that he had um, an alliance with three other kings in the area. So he's allies with those kings. So those three kings and Abram's men, they join forces and they've got an army, an army that can do something about what's happened. I, I just want us to see this. There, there's just a bunch of lessons in chapter 14. And I don't want us to miss these things. His clan was getting really big, 318 trained men. And I want you to notice what he does when he runs into a situation that is just too big to fix. When he finds himself in a seriously dangerous situation. First thing I want you to note is he used his brain. Guys, there is this idea going around that somehow in Christianity, what you have to do is take a leap of faith and check your brain at the door. That is absurd. Christianity is the, is the philosophical system, if you will, that best explains reality as we experience it. You don't have to say, oh, well, I don't believe science. I'm a follower of Jesus. Guys, everything that is true in science uh, validates the truth of Scripture, 
right? You don't have to say, well, I don't care about that history. I read my Bible. But the Bible is an absolutely accurate historical record. You don't have to check your brain at the door to be a follower of God. So yes, it takes faith to walk with God, but it takes the kind of faith that also uses the gifts he's given you. And I love the way that he goes about trying to um, get Lot back. Look at verse 15. He divided his forces against them by night he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He decides, number one, we're going to attack by night. We don't see anything here where God gives him a plan and says, do it this way. He says, here's what we're going to do. We got these hundreds and hundreds of men. We're going to divide them up. And we're going to wait until nightfall when they are camped and they're not ready to fight and we're going to attack by night. This is fascinating because I'm a student of history and I love this stuff and I love to study battles. This is the exact battle plan that won the colonies the Revolutionary War. Exactly the same battle plan. You had, you had um, the Marquis de Lafayette who's, who's leading the French uh, troops and you had Alexander Hamilton leading the American troops and they come to Yorktown where the um, British troops are gathered and they're backed up against the water. They have nowhere to retreat. And what they do is they wait. Now, you, you've seen this in the movies, right? In the, in the Revolutionary War, war was done by day and it was done by lining up and shooting and then ducking and lining up and shooting, right? But the American colonists had a whole different approach. And what they decided to do was wait until nightfall and then they did not allow the men to shoot, a, a, to fire a shot. They divided them, separated them, went from two directions, and they did hand-to-hand -hand combat. And they physically fought rather than shooting, which would wake up the troops in the area and bring support. And before the Battle of Yorktown was over, Cornwallis had surrendered and the United States of America was born. That's exactly what Abram did. He divides the troops, he goes by night, and he attacks them silently. The exact same strategy that worked in Yorktown. Christianity is not about giving up on thinking. It's about using your intellect to approach the life that God has for you. It's always about using your brain and joining God in what he's doing. So first thing he did was he used his brain. Second thing, he did his best. Uh, you know, he had what he had. He, all he could do was all he could do. There was no time to waste. And so he just gathered the men he had. He used the alliances he had, and he went for it. He did his best. Guys, do you think God expects you to do something more than your best? Do you think God expects you to somehow be able to lift yourself up and raise yourself up in order to face a trial? No, what God expects you to do is use your brain, do your best, rely on him. He left the results up to God. He, he can only control what he could control. So he leaves the results up to God, and when it's all over, he gives God the glory. Look at verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of most high God. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give, to the people, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their share." Guys, I want you to picture this because this is another lesson for us to learn. See, it's not just trials that threaten us. Sometimes one of the greatest threats to our success in life is our success in life. Sometimes when things are going well, that's when we get distracted from God. Have you noticed that in your own life? 
It's really easy when we're cruising right along to think, I got this, I'm doing just fine, I don't need to call on the name of the Lord, right? And now we see Abram at his best. He has just won this battle, he's the king who has led everyone into triumph, and now he's coming back with all the spoils and his, the people that have been taken, and he's bringing them back. And the king of Sodom, who, by the way, where the heck was this guy in the battle, He's the one whose people got taken, but he was back at home. Now, he rides out to meet him in the valley. Now, the Bible doesn't go into detail about this, but history tells us exactly how this would have happened. So you have Abram riding in, leading this procession of people. It's a victory march, right? And they're coming back and they're bringing back the spoils. And you have the king of Sodom riding out to meet him. I promise you, the king of Sodom didn't come by himself. All of the people came behind him. And you have this basically ticker tape parade going on. This is a celebration. This is Abram the conquering hero. And he's coming back to receive the spoils that you get when you win a war. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him with his people. And this is a good day for Abram. This is a day of honor. But sometimes the greatest challenges come when things are going well. Put yourself in Abram's shoes. How proud would you be in this moment? Haven't we already seen in Genesis that pride is the beginning of all of our troubles? How proud would you be in this moment? How self-confident would you be at this time in your life? This is the time to take advantage of the opportunity that is before you. This is the time to do some negotiating. This is the time to say, hey, how about you give me some of your land? This is the time to say, hey, how about you give me some of your wealth? This is the time to say, how about you put a statue of me in the town square? How about you name a city after me, Abramville? (laughs) What? This is the time to do that. This is the time to be honored. This is the time to receive gifts, right? He's the hero. But look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of most high God. I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, my question was, who the heck is this guy? Where did he come from? He he comes out of nowhere. He's not part of the story. He's not the king of one of the towns in the area. He had nothing to do with the war. You've got the king of Sodom and his entourage riding up, and you've got Abram and his entourage riding up. They're about to have this big ceremony. And all of a sudden, as the king of Sodom Sodom gets off of his horse, and he stands and he clears his throat to make his speech, this dude, Melchizedek, rides up and says, hey, if you could just excuse me for just a moment. And Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. We know nothing about this guy except what we're told here, but we do know some stuff. He is the king of Salem. The word Salem is the the British. The word Salem is the Hebrew word shalom, which means what? Peace. Peace. He is the king of peace. He is named Melchizedek. The translation of his name Melchizedek is king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He is the king of righteousness. And it says here that he is a priest of the most high God. He's some sort of high priest of God. And he's the king of Salem. And, and, and there's not a town called Salem in that area. But he is the king of Salem, the king of peace, and he is the king of righteousness, and he's a priest to the most high God. There's just one problem. We're in Genesis chapter 14. There are no priests. The the title of priest has not yet been invented for the followers of God. It will be eight more generations before there are any priests. And, and we have Levi, who comes several generations later, and his, his, um, his tribe becomes the tribe of the priests, and out of that tribe comes a guy named Aaron and Moses. Aaron is the brother of Moses, and Aaron becomes the high priest as a Levite. But there are no high priests at this point. There are no priests 
at this point. And yet this guy Melchizedek comes riding in. I'm the king of peace. I'm the king of righteousness. And I am a priest of most high God. And by the way, did you notice what he brought with him? Bread and wine. Now, now where have I heard of that? Bread and wine. This guy, the, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, the priest of the most high God brings with him communion elements, right? And he comes and he blesses Abram. Look at verse 19. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, this guy blesses Abram. Now, to the Jewish reader, at the time that Moses wrote this, Abram is the great hero of their faith. Abram is the forefather of their faith. Abram is the highest ranking official in the history of Judaism, right? This guy blesses Abram. It's always the greater one who blesses the lesser one, right? And then Abram turns around and pays a tithe to Melchizedek. He gives him 10%. And then he gets back in his DeLorean and rides off into some other place. Who is this guy? The prince, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the one who brings the bread and the wine, the one who brings the blessing of God, the one who is the high priest. Who is he? For, for centuries, People shrugged their shoulders and said, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And then the writer of Hebrews wrote Hebrews. And I won't read it to you because we're running out of time, but in Hebrews chapter seven, that's your homework this week, go home and read Hebrews chapter seven. It tells us again about Melchizedek. And it tells us that Melchizedek comes from nowhere and goes to nowhere. That we know nothing of any ancestors and we know nothing of any future of his. We don't know anything about a death for Melchizedek. He just shows up, he comes from nowhere and he goes to nowhere and it tells us that he blesses Abram and that he serves as a high priest while there are not yet any high priests but the priest Levi is still generations away in the loins of Abram. And Abram, the one who should be receiving the tithe because Levi, the priest of Levi, will later be given the tithes, he gives the tithe to this high priest. This high priest, the one with the bread and the wine, there's two possibilities. Either this is Jesus himself before Bethlehem, or he's a type of Jesus. And we find these types in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus, that they could not understand, didn't know what this was until they got and they, and they saw it unfold in the New Testament era. This unbelievable blessing for Abram is that God Most High blesses him with Jesus Christ. Do, do you remember the promise? I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. And from you and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we get a type of this here as Melchizedek, representative of Christ, is the blessing. Isn't it awesome? It's a, what an incredible blessing. Because you know what? Uh, he is a king and a priest. And in the Old Testament, you're not allowed to be a king and a priest. You can either be a king or a priest but he's a king and a priest. And Hebrews 7 tells us so is Jesus, a king and a priest. It's the only time we see him, he's a type of Christ. Jesus, my friends, is the topic of this passage. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the one who alone can be a mediator between us and the God whom we have offended. He's the one who serves in the role of priest. And it doesn't matter what your religious background is or how you were brought up or if you were brought up in a religious uh, um, tenant where you need a priest in order to uh, connect to God. He goes, no, we don't need any human priest to connect with God because Jesus is the great high priest. We find our salvation in Christ 
alone. And we look at this story, and if Melchizedek doesn't show up, we would go, wow, Abram, what a stud. What a great leader. What a brilliant tactician. What a great man. But then Melchizedek comes, and, he, and Abram, at the time of honor, humbles himself before the one who represents the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Christ does for us what no merely human priest can do. And Abraham responds by worshiping him. He gives him a tenth, and then he refuses to keep any of the rest of it for himself. Guys, here's the lesson. I don't care whether you're going through struggles, trials the likes of which you've never known, or whether you're going through times of blessedness like you have always prayed for and hoped for and you hope they'll never end. Either way, here's the news. It ain't about you. It's about him. And if we can get our eyes off ourselves and our troubles or ourselves and our accomplishments, and if we get our eyes on God, then there is hope for us. Abram makes sure that all the glory goes to God. He says to the king of Sodom, I'm not taking anything from you. Why? Because I, I don't want you to say to anybody, I made Abram rich. Why? Because he wants everyone to know he's Abram the Hebrew the different one, and his God has made him rich. He wants all the glory to go to God. The important message for us all, because we all go through trials, and we all go through times of success and blessing, but it isn't about us. It's about Christ. So I ask these questions in closing. How are you doing at keeping Christ central in the midst of your current situation? And I don't know whether you would say you're going through a time of blessing or you're going through a time of trial. How are you doing at keeping it about Christ and not about the trial, not about the blessing, not even about you, but about him? Have you gotten carried away with the things of this world? Because Lot got literally carried away. And yet... I have good news. Even though Lot got literally carried away, God went and rescued him. We're going to keep seeing Lot do stupid stuff. You know what he does next? Moves back into Sodom. <laughs> we're going to keep seeing Lot do all kinds of stupid stuff. And we're going to see God continue to reach out to him and reach out to him and reach out to him and reach out to him just like he continues to reach out to me and just like he continues to reach out to you because I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself and say, I do some stupid stuff now and then. God is not done with you yet. Isn't it time for us to get our focus back on God, and let him lead us wherever it is that brings him the most glory. Let's stand and pray together. God, we're so thankful that even at the times when we take our eyes off you, you never take your eyes off us. Even at the times when, when our affection for you uh, quiets and dwindles, your affection for us rages like a fire at all times. Even, even though we deserve judgment, you offer us grace. And even though we have no way to get to you, you bring us a great high priest by the name of Jesus who becomes the sacrifice who bridges the gap. Oh God, forgive us for getting carried away by the things of this world. And help us to get our eyes focused on you, to trust you, and to give you all the glory. And we'll say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.